Well, let me, let me lead us in prayer as we come around God's Word. Uh, Father, we, we lift you high. Uh, we are thankful for mercy and grace that meets us, especially in difficulty. Uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus through his life and his death and resurrection makes a way for sinful and burdened people like us uh, to be reunited and reconciled with our Creator God, and, and not just to know him as Creator, but to know him as a Father and a, a kind disposer of many graces and blessings. And so we, we're grateful uh, to gather as your people this day. Uh, we come around your word uh, to learn from you. And so would you uh, open our eyes, open our ears, and uh, minister to our hearts uh, through, through your word. And we're thankful that you're always faithful to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. How many like music? Like music? Uh, I love music. I've always got music going if I'm studying or hanging around the house, vacuuming, you know, things like that. Music is, is incredible, a incredible gift from God and of all the many styles and genres. And uh, you, you'll notice, regardless of what type of music you like, and, and maybe, maybe you've seen this before, that people sing about all sorts of things, all sorts of topics. But, but if you listen closely, I've found uh, people tend to sing about two different things. The first thing that people like to sing about are things that they love. Uh, That's where the love song genre comes from. That's from the relationships uh, that I just made. People love to sing about love and relationships or having fun with friends. Uh, People like to sing about their pickup trucks. And uh, I, I am a transplant to Texas. I moved there almost 20 years ago. And I confess, when I heard this song many years ago, I didn't quite understand it till I moved to Texas because every third car in Texas is a pickup truck. Um, have you heard it? It, it says something about um, uh, you can set my car or my, set my truck on fire and roll it down a hill, but I still wouldn't trade it for a Coupe de Ville because every woman likes a pickup truck or something like that. I don't know what it is. I, I failed country music. Do you, guys, do you guys do country music out here? Is that a... Okay, all right. I, I don't take, I'm still learning. So, uh, but, but you sing about things you love, including your pickup truck is the point. Uh, we sing about our favorite team. Uh, so you guys have been singing about those, uh, those Georgia Bulldogs, right? It's uh, been a good time for you guys. Um, and, and so we sing, about things that, we sing about things that we love. But if you listen closely, the other subject you'll hear about in songs is hearing people sing about loss and about pain and about grief. It's, it's, it's the other end of the spectrum. We sing about things we love and then we sing about things that were hurtful or painful. We, we sing about losing a loved one. We sing about um, loss of a, of a situation like a, a breakup or the loss of a, a, a spouse. Uh, we sing about being betrayed we sing about being afflicted, and um, I bet uh, I bet we could go around the room here. We won't do this, but I bet we, if we went around the room, there's probably a song that you like that resonates with some sort of pain that you've had in your life. And it's interesting how God makes music to, to work like that, but um, it, why am I telling you this? Because we're opening up this morning the Psalms, the book of Psalms. And as you know, the the book of Psalms in our Bible is the God-inspired songbook of human experience. 
And uh, just like your favorite Spotify channel or, or iTunes playlist, you'll see a wide variety of subjects that are represented, including the experience of painful relationships. And as we come to Psalm 55 this morning, that, th- this is one of those psalms that describes the pain, the fear, the confusion, the dismay of some very difficult relationships. And um, the superscript, we get a little bit of help here, uh, the superscript, which is those little words right under, probably in your English Bible that says Psalm 55, we get a little bit of insight about the psalm here uh, that tells us that uh, it is a masculine, or that probably means a skillful psalm of David. Uh, but we don't have any historic references as to the occasion. Now, I'll give you a, a, a guess here in a moment based on some of the things that happen in the song, perhaps what David is talking about in his life. But we know at this point it's written by David, and, and it's a song about difficult relationships. Uh, and the title of the message today is Finding God in Difficult Relationships. And I think, I think part of the reason God put this in our Bibles is because he recognizes in, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of especially relationships that are hard, that, that we need Help. We, we need a song to turn to that will help us to turn our hearts and our eyes to God so that we, we can actually meet God and know God better through the midst in the difficulty of a challenging relationship. So that's what we're going to look at today is, is this psalm that I think is going to help us to, to see what God is doing and to know him better through difficult relationships. Now, this is poetry. This is not the book of Romans, which means you're not going to get some nice logical outline like that. You, you get like poetry, like Psalms, uh, it tells a story, it kind of walks us through. So rather than give you uh, an outline of, of like theological points, I'm just going to give you some headings to sort of navigate through the Psalm, but I think along the way we'll, we'll really get an idea of what God's message is here, okay? So Psalm 55, if you want to turn in your Bible with me there, if you haven't already done so, uh, we're going to look at this Psalm together. Let's look at heading number one. Uh, we'll see this point in the first five verses, and it's this. Uh, we want to first understand the emotion of difficult relationships. Understand the emotion of difficult relationships. Look with me at verse one. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy Because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. There's a little bit of emotion in there, isn't there? Now, like all good songs, what this song does is it draws us in, it connects us to the psalm through these painful emotions that David is experiencing. Just look back, look at some of these. He's restless, he's complaining, he's distracted. His heart, he says, is in anguish. The terrors of death have fallen upon him. He's dealing with fear, he's dealing with trembling. These are sleepless nights, these are hearts full of anguish and fear. He's distracted, he can't think straight. He has this sense that, that something is about to go from bad to worse and dread comes upon him. And I bet you've been there too. You know, you're laying awake at night. Something has happened. You can't turn your mind off. And you're replaying that fear, that scenario, that thing that happened over and over again. 
You're distracted throughout the day. You're trying to focus on your work. You know, uh, moms and dads, you got that, that son or daughter that's trying to have a conversation with you and you're not there. They're talking, you're looking at them and you're not there because you're, you're playing that thing over and you're distracted. You're not paying attention to what they're saying. This is, this is the reality of life in a broken world, that we deal with sleepless nights, we deal with difficulty, we deal with anxiety, we deal with fear, we deal with being distracted. And what I love about the Psalms and the Bible in general is this is a very real and authentic book, isn't it? God doesn't whitewash the human experience and say, oh, everything is always you know, roses and candy canes. Uh, This is what life is really about. And David wants to communicate the emotion and the anguish and the difficulty so that we would see, yeah, I feel like that. I've had some nights like that. And and, and maybe there's something here that can help me when I feel like that. So so we've seen the emotion, kind of heading number one here. Let's turn now to heading number two, which tells us a little bit about why is this emotion present? Why is he struggling so much? So heading number two, let's recognize the nature of, of the first difficult relationship. See, the reason that David is in this scenario where he's struggling with these emotions is because of a difficult relationship. Look with me at verse three. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. And if you skip down to just verse 10, he continues on that thought. Verse 10 says this, day and night they go around her upon her wall, they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst, destruction is in her midst, oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. So, so we see in there the difficulty of what David's dealing with, don't we? He's looking out at his city, the city of Jerusalem, he's looking at his country, the nation of Israel, and what is he seeing? He's seeing destruction. He's seeing oppression. He's seeing deceit. He's seeing mischief. He's seeing iniquity. And you think this could have been written today, couldn't it? This describes what we see in our world when your news app bings and there's one more depressing news item left in your day. And that burdens us, that weighs us down. But but notice it's not just the, the cultural, the external things that are weighing him down. Did you notice the personal part? Look what he says. He says, there are wicked people, what he calls the voice of the enemy, the pressure of the wicked, and they are bringing down trouble upon him. And in their anger, they are bearing a grudge against him. They're, they're holding something against him. They're unwilling to forgive. They're unwilling to work it out. And again, you know what that's like. I know what that's like. You're talking to some person, some person at the office, some person in your neighborhood, maybe someone in your family. And you know that there is something that has come between you and that other person. And they don't want to work it out. And they hold a grudge against you. And you know what that's like, that awkwardness when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody, that, that coldness, it's like someone turned the thermostat down, you know, and, it, and you're just trying to have a conversation and you, it's, it's just weird. That's where David's at. He's looking at destruction and deceit and mischief in his culture. He's looking at enemies who are afflicting him that are bringing trouble into his life. And, and by the way, who's David? He's the king. He's responsible for that city. He's responsible for that nation. So so there's a personal responsibility that he likely feels as he looks at his country and as he sees his enemies. And and, and we realize, and this is the point of this first part of the psalm, 
difficult relationships will cause some of your and my most greatest afflictions in life, won't they? It's people. People do that. And so we see that the realness of the psalm, the challenge of the psalm. He's, he's sleepless, and he's trying to go to sleep, and, and he's having these sleepless nights. He's dealing with worry and anxiety and fear and destruction, and he's looking out and seeing his beloved country and people that are afflicting him and holding grudges and causing trouble in his life. And, and that's what brings David into the scenario that we find in the psalm. Now, why is David writing this? I think he's writing this not to just be autobiographical, but because, remember, this would have been a song that the congregation of Israel would have sung in the corporate worship service. So so there's something redemptive in this song. There's something here. There's a reason that David is trying to to, um, help us with this psalm in the writing of the psalm. And, And I think we see the first help here in the third heading as we work through this psalm together. The third heading is this, identify two temptations and difficult relationships. Identify two temptations and difficult relationships. Now, now let me ask you this. When you're in this scenario, when you're having a difficult relationship, when there's some unresolved conflict and you're, you can't sleep and you're distracted and you're fearful, what are you tempted to do? Well, I think you and I are probably tempted to do the same two things that David lists here. Look at this. Temptation number one. Look at verse six. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove and I would fly away and be at rest. Verse seven, behold, I would wander away, wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Verse eight, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Now be honest, be honest. When you're in a difficult relationship like this, that's what you do. You start pulling up that, hey, that that vacation spot we went to, we could move there. You get on the job boards and you start looking around different jobs. Hey, I'll just get a different job and then I don't have to deal with this, this hurtful relationship. You know, we'll, we'll change soccer teams. We'll change schools. See, temptation number one when we have a difficult relationship is to run away, is to flee. And that's difficult. We want to isolate or withdraw or move, cut off relationships. And, and you know, you think about this. This is why... Sometimes people get divorced. It's just a temptation. It's, 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 a, it's a, a way out. It's a way to get away from that difficulty, that, that person that you love that doesn't love you anymore. This is often why people stop communicating. This is why people cut off uh, relationships. This is why people defriend you on Facebook. Because it's easy. It's an easy way to deal with the pain. And David says, oh, that I could just grow wings like a dove and fly away and be at rest in a place of refuge. Now, I want to be clear. It's not always wrong to flee a difficult relationship or to flee a dangerous situation. In fact, the proverb says that that the prudent, the wise man, sees evil and hides himself. And there is a time, certainly, uh, when fleeing is a good and wise thing to do. But, But the question is, what's motivating this temptation for David? Why does he want to flee? Why does he want to run away? Where's my heart? Where's my motive? So we need to be careful. When we're dealing with difficult relationships, we're tempted to flee, we're tempted to run away. We need to ask, where's my heart in that? But there's a second temptation that David lists here, not just the desire to run away and and flee. Look at verse nine. We'll see our second temptation. Verse nine, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I've seen violence and strife in the city. Now skip down to verse 15. Let death 
come deceitfully upon them, let them go down alive to Sheol. For evil is in their dwelling, is in their midst. So temptation number one, I'm going to run away. What's temptation number two? Get them, Lord. Annihilate them, Lord. Let the ground open up and swallow them whole, Lord, right? Now, now did you catch in those two verses, David is leaning on two Old Testament historic stories. What's the first, when he says, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, what's he thinking about? The Tower of Babel, right? When he says, um, where is it? Let them go down alive to Sheol, what's he thinking of there? Remember Korah's rebellion in the book of Numbers, chapter 16, where the ground opened up and swallowed them whole? Uh, you know, that's like the ancient Near Eastern sarlacc pit, you know, where it just opens up and the people go in. And the, these, are, these are images that David brings from the Old Testament, from the stories, and says, Lord, just get rid of them. Get rid of my enemies. And, and, and of course, that introduces, uh, you'll see this in your Psalms before. Do, do you know the term imprecatory Psalms? Do you know that term? imprecatory psalms. Well, we'll see, there's, there's a few of these in our Bibles. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where the writer is basically calling on God to get his enemies, to kill them, to destroy them, to get rid of them. And, and that, that can be a little bit troubling if we don't understand why those are in our Bible and what we're supposed to do with them. I, I mean, you know, I don't know that we're supposed to just take those and, and personalize them right away. So again, without we could spend a whole class on this, and I'm sure you guys talk about that in, in Bible interpretation hermeneutics classes at your church. But uh, just, just two little hints here since we're here. When we read a psalm where the author is calling on God to kill his enemies or afflict his enemies in some way, we need to remember, let me give you just two hints on that, okay? Number one, sometimes the imprecatory psalms, and, and we see them with the prophets, we see them with the patriarchs, sometimes with the apostles, they're not saying those things as a personal request to God. They're speaking as God's agent. They're speaking as God's spokesperson where God is really the one pronouncing judgment on the enemies. And of course, you see that most clearly in the prophets, in the prophetic books of the Bible. So when you see that in Psalms, just remember, this may not be a personal retaliation request. It may be the sort of thing where the author is speaking on behalf of God. Uh, David is the king of Israel, the, the, the monarch of the theocracy of Israel, so, so that's possible. The other thing you have to remember, and uh, parents, you're going to love this because we all use those story Bibles when we're kids, okay? Um, have you noticed that not every, Bi- every example in the Bible is a good one to follow? Have you noticed this? There are good examples, there are bad examples, and we're not just supposed to sort of moralize everything and, and say well, everything's a good, a good example to follow. What we need to do when we come to examples in the Bible is rely on those more instructive parts of the Bible that say this is a good thing, this is a bad thing, and then we use that information to evaluate is this a good thing to do or not. Does that make sense? So when we're looking at the imprecatory Psalms, one of the things we should be saying is, is this a good example to follow? So again, so much more that can be said on that. Let's come back to Psalm 55 and focus on this one in particular. Um, It is not wrong, I want to be clear on this, it is not wrong to pray for justice. In fact, it is very good and right to pray for justice. Jesus models that in Luke chapter 18 in the Gospels where he tells a parable about prayer and he says that God will bring justice for his elect that cry out to him. 
And so that's a good thing to do. Jesus is saying that's a good thing to do when you pray, to pray for justice. It's also not wrong to pray that God would stop and punish evil people. And that's one of the things we do as the church, isn't it? We, we gather together and we pray what? Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which includes praying for justice. Praying for good and righteousness to prevail in the world. Praying for evildoers to to be um, overruled. That's a good thing to do. And in fact, Jesus, again, models that in Matthew 23, where he pronounces a series of judgments or woes upon people in various cities that were entrenched in wickedness in his day. So that's a good thing to do. It's good to pray for justice. It's good to pray that God would stop and punish people. But, but, but But here's the challenge, okay? And I think this is where David is. When you or I are hurt personally, that makes it very difficult to have a right motive in something like this because our own emotions, our own sinful responses can get intermixed with a good desire for justice and a good desire for punishment. So I don't know where David is. I I certainly, uh, we, we can't beat the pulpit on this. We don't know for sure, but at least raises the question, is David's request holy? Is David's request righteous? We, we don't know, but it's good to check our hearts and make sure that, uh, that we're, not, we're not crying out as some sort of personal retaliation when we do that, okay? So when, when, we're, when we're afflicted with difficult relationships like David, remember the two temptations. Temptation number one is to flee. Temptation number two is get them, Lord. And both of those can be very dangerous as we think about how to best honor God in a difficult situation. Okay, so we've talked about the emotion of a difficult situation. We've talked about some of the causes of the situation. We've seen two temptations that we're likely to face. By the way, you're hearing that and you're going, that's fight or flight. That's fight or flight. I learned that in biology. Well, no, it's actually back, it's been inspired in our Bibles all all these years, right? Let's look at the fourth heading. Contemplate the hurt of the second difficult relationship. Contemplate the hurt of the second difficult relationship. Now, this is interesting because David, at the beginning of the psalm, tells us about enemies, but he doesn't really identify them. But in verses 12 to 14, he gives us a little more insight. And what's interesting is, up until this time, David is talking to God. This is a prayer, a song to God. But in verse 12, something changes. And he stops talking to God and he begins to talk to the person that was afflicting him or or about the person that was afflicting him. Look at this, verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, for then I could hide myself from him. Verse 13. But it is you. And in the Hebrew poetry, David writes that in a way as to put the spotlight and the emphasis. You can see his finger extended and says, it's you, my friend, my intimate friend, my my close companion. Look at what he says here. It's you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to have sweet, sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God amongst the assembly Together, And this is, why, this is where the psalm takes a, a really significant turn. This is not some distant enemy, some cultural leader, some foreign power that's afflicting him. David says this is his companion. 
This is his familiar friend. This is someone whom he had sweet fellowship. He he ministered together. He worshiped together with this person. We say, what happened that, that now David says, this man is a reproach. He's exalting himself against me. Look at this. He, he explains more of the affliction here in verse 20. Look down at verse 20. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant, meaning he had broken promises to David. Verse 21, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were soft like oil, yet they were drawn swords. Do you hear that? The relationship has become a relationship of deceit and mind games and manipulation. People that say one thing, but they mean something else. You know, they're friendly when you're in front of them, and then they go and they stab you in the back. We would call this like a passive-aggressive person today. This is, this, this is ancient Near Eastern gaslighting that's going on here. What's, what is going on here? Well, we can't be sure, and even the psalm that Pastor Shane read at our scripture reading uh, refers to maybe the same event. David had a personal counselor, a personal advisor as the king of Israel. His name, the advisor's name was Ahithophel. And you can read the story in the book of 2 Samuel, verses 15 to 17, if you just want to write that down. I, we don't have time to go there and tell the whole story, but let me, just, let me just sum it up for you. He's got this advisor, and his job, of course, was to advise the king and counsel the king. Well, Ahithophel plots with David's own son to kill David and take over the throne. And moms and dads, I'm a parent, a lot of you are parents. I can't think of anything more personal, more painful than someone who I considered a close friend who's trying to turn one of my own kids against me. And not just turn them against me, to kill me and to take my role, to take my throne, David says. So again, we can't be sure, but, but that's as we read David's life, maybe that was the historic event he had in mind. But whatever it was, it was very difficult. Do you, do you remember how the story ends, by the way? The plot fails, another counselor intervenes and, and thwarts, the pro, uh, thwarts the plot. Ahithophel goes home and kills himself, commits suicide. And then his son Absalom, you know what happens to him? He gets caught in the tree by the hair. And David's commander-in-chief come, comes by and puts swords right through his heart, kills him. You can imagine just the despair, the grief, the, the, the extent, the spectrum of emotion that David must have been feeling in that situation. A friend conspires against his situation. Now, none of you are a king of a country, right? No kings? No queens? Okay. So we, we can't do like a, like a one-to-one application here. But I bet some of you have had sim- similar situations where someone close to you turns on you. You know, maybe it's a, a friend who conspires against you. I, maybe, it, maybe it's a, someone who you considered a friend, a family member, and they're conspiring against your marriage. They're conspiring against your adult children. They're conspiring against your ministry. They're conspiring against your faith. And they used to be a friend. They used to be someone you trusted. And that, that's personal. That hurts like no other hurt. And David writes, perhaps reflecting on that painful experience of betrayal, 
and loss. And, and, you know, there are very, very few experiences in life that are more painful than when a close friend or family member turns against you. You know, in a room this size, I bet there's some of you that have had spouses turn against you. People that loved you, said they loved you, enjoyed closeness of the deepest kind, and at some point they turn away and they say, I want out. I don't want to be in this relationship. Not only do I don't love you anymore, I despise you. That's painful. That's hurtful. That's, that's betrayal. Some of you have had spouses that may have abused you. That's a whole other level of betrayal and hurt and difficulty. Uh, some of you may have had adult children that have turned against you. I was talking to a dear friend not too long ago, um, and uh, one of their adult children got in a situation with the parents and the adult child went systematically and turned all the other siblings against his parents. That unspeakable pain on the part of those parents. Maybe it's not a child, maybe it's a parent. Maybe some of you have parents that are critical of you and you've never been able to please them. They've never been happy with you. Whatever you do, and no matter what happens, they don't like you, they're not Uh, They don't think of you highly. They may not even want a relationship with you. And you grieve at the loss of that family relationship. Or maybe it's a friend you've committed. There's been some offense. You don't even know what it is and you try to work it out. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to work it out. They just pretend like everything. And and, and again, you don't even know what happened. And you live with that ongoing burden. Every time you think of that person, every time you see them, people that you love and People that used to love you now treat you like enemies. And of course, we can't, we can't hear this story in David's life without thinking about the greatest act of betrayal in human history. And that was when one of Jesus' own disciples betrayed the very Son of God. And the grief and the, the misery and the heartache that that must have been to Jesus, who was 100% God, but he was also 100% man and experienced that affliction. So what do you do? What do you do when you're here? When you can't sleep, you can't focus, you're distracted, there's been some personal betrayal, some personal hurt, some difficult relationship. Can I, can I show you the good news of this psalm? Can I show you what God wants to do to minister to you and to me in that relationship. And I think this is why David wrote a song about it. It's so good. It's so helpful. So here's the big idea, and then I'll flesh it out into some smaller points. Okay, the big idea, what do you do in this situation? This is our fifth heading. Actively pursue God in your difficult relationship. Actively pursue God in your difficult relationship. Have you noticed this? That that flee temptation? Not only we might we want to flee our job, get a different job, flee our marriage, get a different spouse, you know, flee to a, a different location, you know, move. We might be tempted to flee from God. And did you notice that the beginning of this psalm starts with prayer? The end of this psalm concludes with prayer, uh, what literary people call inclusio. I think of it as bookends. Prayers on the front end, prayers on the back end, showing us that when difficult relationships arise, the most important thing we do is pursue God when we don't feel like it, 
And we don't have the energy to do it. Pursue God. So let's just break this down as David gives us some, some points here. Number one, call out to God continually. Call out to God continually. The psalm starts with prayer. It ends with prayer. Uh, uh, David models for us this need to call out to God. Uh, the text tells us in verse one, give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself. Verse two, give heed to me and answer me. As he struggles with the pain of his betrayal, as he desires retaliation and judgment for his enemies, for God, he prays a God to bring them alive down to shield. It's like something snaps in him. And you know what this is like. You have that moment where it's like, what am I doing? What am I doing? My focus is all wrong. His focus shifts. His focus changes from his betrayal and the hurt and the desire for their destruction, and it shifts to his own heart, and he goes, this is not the right thing to do. And he turns to God. He cries out to God. He says, as for me, this is the conclusion of the psalm, I will call upon God. Look at this. Uh, verse, um, verse 16, this is, excuse me. As for me, I will call upon God evening and morning and noon. You say, those are out of order. <laughs> not if you're Jewish. Because the Jewish day starts at sundown, right? So evening comes first, then morning, then noon. That's the proper order if you're Jewish, okay? What is he saying? All the time, continually, I call about God. And, and notice here he says he complains and murmurs. Uh, those aren't words that, that we use much in our culture. Complaining usually has a negative o- overtone. But complain, uh, in the texture, what, what David means is lamenting. Loud, enthusiastic, emotional speech, often for help and deliverance. That's what lament is. It's loud, emotional, enthusiastic speech for help and deliverance. And you know what that helps us to see? It is good and right to call out to God in your emotion. You don't have to come to God with all your church words lined up. God says, cry out to me. Be real with me. Be authentic with me in terms of your emotion. Tell me how you feel. Cry out to God. Lament. It's okay to be, ready, enthusiastic with God. Call out to him. Come to him. Ask for his help. The word murmuring, the Hebrew means, literally means to make a sound or to moan. And if you've been in this situation, you know exactly what it means. You're sitting in your bed, you're like, you can't sleep, you're distracted, all this stuff's going through your mind, and you're trying to pray, and you literally can't pray. You can't put a coherent thought together, you're so distraught. And God says, that's okay, moan if you need to. It's okay to cry out to God with moans, if that's all you can do. But the point is not your words, the the point is not intelligible speech, the point is that you're calling out to God, you're turning to God in your affliction, and that's what he models for us to do. What you do, listen, what you do with the pain and hurt in a difficult relationship is really important. If you keep it in here, you will either be depressed or bitter. So give it to God. Turn to God, call out to him, cry out to him. And as you do, number two, expect his redeeming peace. That's verse 18, look at this. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. This is interesting. It's like David's theology catches up with him. Do you feel like your theology kind of lags behind when you're in a situation like this? And like it's all of a sudden your theology catches up to you and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember who God is. 
I remember his promises and it catches up to you in your affliction. I think that's what happens here. David says, yes, he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. Notice his confidence. As he cries out to God, he remembers, verse 16, that God will save him. Verse 17, that God will hear him. Verse 18, that he will redeem my soul in peace. And verse 19, that God will act on his behalf. I I love the I love the phraseology there in 19. Even the one who sits enthroned from of old will act to help me, David says. And though we often feel alone in our affliction, we can sometimes even feel like God doesn't care or isn't listening. David's theology catches up to him and he remembers and has a confidence that God will hear and God will act. That's number two, expect his redeeming peace. Remember that he's promised to do that. Now, I know you're wondering, how did God do that to help David? How did he help him? Well, if, if we know, if, if the story that we're thinking this is based on is true, we know how God delivered him, and, and uh, there's that Davidic covenant, right, that God made uh, with David and, and the Davidic line. So, so we know that there were covenantal promises that assured David that things would be okay for him in that, in that realm. But I don't think David is just saying that God's going to rescue him from his enemies, although that's true. I think he's also saying that God's going to rescue him from the anguish and the fear and the difficulty and the grief he feels in his heart. You say, how do you get that? Well, I I think that's implicit in the language. Look back at the text. He uses that little word, peace. You know that word. It's shalom, right? It means well-being. And he uses that word peace alongside of the word nephesh, the word for soul or life in the Old Testament. And when those two words come together, it speaks not just of an external peace, like things are going to work out out there. It speaks of an internal heart peace in a difficult situation. You say, what's David saying? Here's what he's saying. God can give you a peace in your soul even in a difficult relationship. That's what he's saying. Even though that difficult relationship persists, See, David doesn't just need external rescue, he needs help with his heart, (laughs) just like you and just like me when we're in a situation like this. You know this, external difficulties often create internal heart turmoil, and that that difficult relationship creates untold heartache and difficulty for us. And, and, And you'll agree with me, if you've been in a situation like this, It's the internal pain that's the harder thing to deal with, isn't it? I mean, there's external stuff that needs to happen, but that anguish in your soul is the most painful part of the deal. And and this, the promise of what David is saying is God's gonna bring peace in your heart though that difficult relationship persists. And you say, okay, okay, here's, here's the price of the psalm right here. How does God do that? That's what we need, right? Okay, okay, I'm going to take God at his word. How is he going to give me that peace, though this difficult relationship continues? Well, look at this. Look at the third thing. Unload your burdens upon God. Unload your burdens upon him. Look at verse 22. This is going to sound familiar. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. How does God bring peace in your life in a difficult relationship that persists? Answer, when you give it to him. When you stop 
carrying it and you unload it to him. You say, what does that mean? It means you stop worrying about it. It means you stop thinking about it. It's, hang on, it's, it, it means you stop trying to control it. And I know that's hard. It means you stop playing out scenarios and you give it to God. And the Bible says, he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. See, see it is possible. The, the, the hope of the psalm is, it is possible to have peace in your heart and be okay, even though the unresolved relationship continues. See, don't, do you get that backward like I do? You got some relationship. I think I'm going to be okay when I fix the problem. I'm going to have peace in my heart when we work it out. So what do you do when you can't work it out? What do you do when it's not possible to resolve it? What do you do when the other person isn't in? They're like, I don't care. I don't want to do that. Is it hopeless? No. The promise of this psalm is you can have peace in your heart that is independent of the unresolved relationship. And oh, that is good news, isn't it? That is good news. God doesn't have to fix all your broken relationships before you can have peace in your heart about it. That's the point. And what great news that is. Now, now you're thinking, this sounds familiar, Keith. I've heard this before. You've heard this because Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, says something very similar. What does he say? You, you know the verse. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's right. So, so my, my thought is maybe Peter was doing his devotions in Psalm 55 the morning that he wrote that. And he borrows it from Psalm 55 here. But you know, again, we, we, can't, we can't look at this. We can't think about this without thinking about something that this looks forward to in some way. That the unfolding of Revelation pinnacles in someday. And that is the coming of the Messiah himself. David talks about it in other Psalms. The coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And the most... Probably the, the most particular and, and beautiful part of the Old Testament that talks about the coming of Messiah is Isaiah 53, isn't it? And do you remember, just write this down, Isaiah 53, verse 4. We don't need to turn there right now. But, but do you remember the description of the Messiah, the description of Jesus that Isaiah gives us? That one day, hundreds of years later, that the Messiah would come. And why is he going to come? Why do we need this Messiah? Why do we need Jesus? Listen to this. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. You know why Jesus came? Jesus came for lots of reasons, right? He came to redeem people from sin. He, he came to make atonement. He, he came to, li- to live a righteous life and then allow that to be imputed to us by faith alone, through grace alone, and him alone. But what Isaiah is talking about in verse 4 is another reason he came. He came to take those burdens of broken relationships and griefs and difficulties and anxieties off your back. He came to help you with the difficulty of life in a broken world. And if you know Jesus Christ today, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you have been reconciled to God because of his work, I want you to hear the benefits that we have of this great Savior. You don't have to bear those things. Jesus says, give them to me. 
That's why I came, to take them off you. If you don't know Jesus and you're trying to do life in this broken world through pain and grief and difficulty and you're trying to bear that, can I, can I tell you the greatest news in the world? You don't have to bear that anymore. Jesus came, the Son of God came to save you from your sin, to reconcile you to God and to pull those burdens off of your back so that you can have a peace in your heart. Why? Because all my problems are solved? No, because you're united with the Savior. And that's good news. And I hope that you will look into that and talk to some of these wonderful faith community church uh, Christians here. If if you've come here this morning without Christ, they want to talk to you about how you can know Christ as well. When I was a kid, I grew up in a real traditional church. We used to sing a song, and I won't sing it for you because that won't be pleasant, but I will read it to you. Listen to this. You probably heard some of this, some of you. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And oh, listen to this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Isn't that great news? Listen to verse two. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And these are, these are precious words, guys. Can we find a friend so faithful whom Will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Even the ones that are too painful for you to talk about. So take it to the Lord in prayer. That is good news. That's the gospel. That's our Savior. That's what Christianity is about. And we have that provision through the person and work of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What are you carrying this morning that Jesus is supposed to be carrying? Will you give it to him? Kids, children, there's lots of kids here. I love this. I love kids. Hey, guys, how's it going? Um, I'm going to talk to the kids, so old people, you can eavesdrop if you want. But I'm going to talk to the kids for a minute, okay? Kids, uh, your parents need help with this, okay? So I, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, you ever helped your mom and dad in the yard with a wheelbarrow. You ever done that? A little wheelbarrow? You know what that is? Little, it's a little bucket with handles and it's got one wheel on it. Kids, if you know wheelbarrows, raise your, raise your hand. You wheel, okay, great. We've got smart kids here. I knew this. I knew it. Okay. You know when you push the wheelbarrow and there's nothing in it, it's pretty easy, right? You can burn it up down the grass and run it down the sidewalk and everything's good, right? What happens when dad starts putting bricks and, and uh, grass and dirt and how's it then? It's harder to push, isn't it? And you're, you're, you're pushing, you're trying to help dad, you're pushing across the yard, you're doing one of these things, you're kind of weaving and oh, I almost dropped it, right? That's, okay, so, so here, here's when your mom and dad struggle, I'm serious kids, this is important, when you see your mom and dad struggle with difficult relationships, your job is to remind them that Christians should live with empty wheelbarrows. Can you do that? Because that's what we do. Mom and dad, you know this. You go through life, stuff gets put in that wheelbarrow, broken relationships, difficulties, afflictions, struggles, that wheelbarrow piles up. You know what you're supposed to do? Every moment of the day, dump. Oh, that's, oh, that's so much better. <laughs> Fills back up. Dump. Oh, that's a lot. Right? That's what we do. We take it to the Lord 
in prayer. God wants us to live as Christians with empty wheelbarrows. Okay? All right, let's, let's land the plane here. Number four, assure yourself that God will handle it. Assure yourself that God will handle it. Verse 23, he says, But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half of their days. You say, that, that sounds back like that earlier in the psalm where he's saying, Get them, Lord, get them, Lord. Maybe, but I think something has changed here. His language is different. It's intentionally different in the poetry of the psalm. And, and so maybe, maybe there's something here. See, in the previous verses, David is telling God how God should handle it. And maybe that was a little bit misguided when he said, let them go down alive to Sheol. Maybe that was going a little bit too far. But here he seems to be more content that God will take care of it. You say, what's the difference between a prayer for personal retaliation and a prayer that says, God, will you punish evildoers? Here's the difference. One arises from your hurt, the other arises from your faith. I think that's the difference. And again, if if I'm understanding this right, one one says, I know what's best and God should do it like this. The other says, God knows what's best and he should take care of it. And I think what happens is David unloads his burden to God and his perspective changes. He still wants justice, but he's more content to let God be God. That's Romans 12, right? God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not your job to execute justice and retaliation. That's God's job. Our job is to overcome evil with good. So what's the secret to being at peace in your heart when people have hurt you and there has been so much sin and wickedness and wrong in the world when you've been abused or abandoned or cut off and betrayed? We, we, we empty our burdens to God. We, we unload our wheelbarrow to God. That's what Jesus said back in 1 Peter chapter 2. That's what Jesus did, right? He, he didn't retaliate, but he kept entrusting himself to the him who judges righteously, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. And that's what we do, right? We assure ourselves that God will handle it. And then finally, number five, last thing, continue to trust him. Continue to trust him. Look at the end of verse 23. But I, again, the the Hebrew is emphatic there in terms of how David writes it there. We could say, but as for me, I will trust in you. Please don't look over that. As you grow in your faith, as you grow in your understanding of scripture, you realize that God, God really is only asking us one question. And he asks it thousands of different ways in life. But it's really just one question that he asks of his children. What is it? Will you trust me? You say, what does it mean to trust God in a difficult relationship? It means you trust him to help you deal with the pain in your heart. It means you trust him to believe that he knows best, that he's working, that he's good and a kind father. It means you, you trust him and believe that you can be okay. You can be at peace. <laughs> you can even be happy in God in the midst of a difficult relationship. To trust God in difficult relationship means you believe that he will bring justice, he will exact proper punishment for all the sin and evil and wrong in the world, even things done to you, that he will handle it one day and to trust him to do that. And trusting God in a difficult relationship means to believe that his timing is best, to be patient and to rest in him. You want the psalm real simple? In a difficult relationship, you can run, You can retaliate 
or you can rest and trust the one whom we love and whom we serve. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that you give such hope and encouragement in the afflictions and broken relationships of life. Help us to cast all our anxiety on him, knowing that you care for us. And thank you for the Lord Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who came to bear our sorrows. And as we draw near to him, we find a supernatural peace. We can, we can even find an unexplainable joy and rest because you are carrying our burdens and we trust you and we're grateful. Will you do this in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name, amen.